It's Friday, September 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. All signs seem to point to the fact that President Trump will be able to nominate and get confirmed by the Senate his third Supreme Court justice all in his first term. This would push the court to be the most conservative it has been since 1950, and depending on the outcome of the election, could set up future fights between the branches of government. Michael Bailey, professor at Georgetown University, joins us for the court's ideological shift. Next, essential workers in the U.S. are reporting high levels of burnout. Because of the pandemic, essential workers are having to deal with increased workloads, understaffing, and stress from fear of getting sick and enforcing safety protocols. Michael Sainato, reporter at The Guardian, joins us for how 58% of U.S. workers are burned out. Finally, music festivals and the live events industry are trying to create their own bubbles to get people out again. One strategy that is being explored is two-stage COVID testing. Get a test a few days before the event, and then another quick test before you can get in. While there are some limitations, this could be a model to get live events going again. Michelle Luke, independent counterculture journalist at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This Saturday, I have every confidence uh, that President Trump will uh, introduce to the nation a woman who will uh, bring a judicial philosophy in the tradition of Justice Antonin Scalia. Joining us now is Michael Bailey, professor at Georgetown University, where he directs the McCourt School's Massive Data Institute. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thank you. I wanted to talk a little bit more about what's going on with the Supreme Court right now. President Trump will be nominating a judge to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. By what we've seen, Republicans seem to have enough senators on board to move through with the nomination and make a vote eventually. So it does seem that President Trump will be able to get a third justice on the court in his first term, something I don't know if that's ever been done before at all. But what we're also seeing is that, you know, this is going to shift the ideological tenor of the court. There'll be a six to three conservative majority on that court. And uh, you did a few statistical models showing that this is going to be the most conservative court since 1950. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about this. You know, one of the ways that we try to figure out how conservative or liberal the court is, is we look at their voting patterns and compare their voting patterns over time. And so it's actually pretty complicated to do because they're voting on different issues today than they were voting on in 1990 or 1973. So what we've done is we've taken not only the voting patterns of the justices on the cases that they see, but we've also taken instances where they take positions on cases that were happened before previous courts. So we kind of throw that into the mix, and that at least gives us some leverage to be able to talk not only about who's more liberal or conservative today, but who's more liberal or conservative over time. And when we do that, what we see, it's really quite striking is, you know, this thing has moved over time or where the court is. And we think about the median of the court, that's going to be the decisive vote on a typical case. And today on the current court, or I guess when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still on the court, Chief Justice Roberts was the median, meaning he was in the middle between four people to his left and four people to his right. But now, if, as you said, uh, President Trump succeeds in nominating someone who is almost certainly going to be very conservative to the court, the median, the middle member, the decisive member of the court, they're going to be to the right of anyone we've seen since 1950. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of decisions that come down five to four. We've seen a ton in these past few rulings that we've gotten the past few years. That's going to be a lot less likely now. As you mentioned, you just needed kind of that median judge to 
cross over on one side or the other to make that final determination. But now there's going to be two extra on the liberal side. They would have to win over two extra judges just to get a majority decision there. So that's going to be a lot tougher. I don't know that we'll see six to three decisions. I mean, of course we will, but I'm not sure that every decision will be six to three. But what will happen is it's just the conservatives have that much more uh, room to give. Really striking in the, in the recent term, the Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Roberts, they're all pretty conservative individuals. And yet there was quite a number of fairly liberal decisions. And the reason right. that happened was this time it was Roberts. He went over to the liberals on abortion. This time it was Gorsuch on Native American issues. This time it was Kavanaugh on something else. And so the liberals did okay. In fact, on high-profile sexual identity type issues, liberals have generally done quite well. But now liberals can't count on just getting lucky, as it were, to find one conservative who on whatever, you know, particular specifics of a case seems to be drawn to the liberal side. Now they got to get two. And that becomes a much, much harder uh, task for them. And there's going to be a lot of very hotly contested issues, you know, abortion. A lot of people are talking about that. Things with elections, labor laws, health care will probably come up again. Government regulation. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be coming up. And the ideological gap is going to change depending on who wins the presidency. It seems like the Democrats will retain control of the House. But what about the Senate? And all this is going to do is just set up a lot of different fights between the branches of government. Yeah, and that's really something that's coming down and, and uh, again, it depends on the election. You know, if President Trump is re-election and the Republicans continue to have the Senate, then we would have a kind of ordinary situation where, you know, the court is, yeah, they're kind of out of whack, uh, out of line, as it were, with one of the chambers of Congress or one of the institutions of government. But they've got another one or more institutions who kind of cover them. But if we have a situation which, you know, I would say is certainly 50 percent probability at this point, Democrats controlling the House, Senate and presidency then we would have the biggest gap between the, the Supreme Court and the elected branches. And the thing about that, one, as you said, is it creates conflict. But two, it creates conflict in a way that's really hard to predict, but quite interesting and probably asymmetric. So the famous thing about the Supreme Court was the people, especially at the uh, founding of the nation, was they were just saying, court has no power. Whose army does the, the Supreme Court control? Nothing. Right. And so typically they haven't needed so much power because they've had at least one elected branch to be their representative, as it were, you know, among the more powerful institutions. But you all could imagine a situation where, again, <laughs> everything is lined up against the court. So as much as conservatives have been really celebrating the power that they do get from essentially controlling the court, then it suddenly turns to that power needs to be respected by the elected branches. And we've already seen, by the way, we've seen President Trump, he just ignores subpoenas and he ignores, you know, some things that are part of the judicial process and there's been no consequences, right? And so now what if the elected branches with this big gap start to do things that could undermine the respect for the court? Michael Bailey, professor at Georgetown University, where he directs the McCourt School's Massive Data Institute. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. At the beginning of the pandemic, these workers were hailed as heroes. There's a lot of appreciation. A lot of companies rolled out hazard pay, an extra dollar or two an hour, and that disappeared starting in June. Joining us now is Michael Sinato, reporter for The Guardian. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. We've talked about this on the podcast before, COVID fatigue. 
It's real. A lot of people are feeling it just kind of in their everyday lives, shutdowns, reopenings, everything that's going on. But this is also especially real for essential workers, people who have kind of been working throughout the entirety of the pandemic through shutdowns and reopenings and all that. On one hand, they're lucky to have jobs and all, but there's so many stressors that are coming with being essential workers and just kind of having to be their extra workloads tolls on you mentally, emotionally, physically. There's a lot of stuff going on. So, Michael, you talk to a lot of people who would be classified as essential workers working throughout this whole thing. What are they telling you? How are they feeling about this? The overall consensus is that these workers are burned out from working during the pandemic and all the changes and all the stressors that they've undergone over these past six, seven months. And that ranges from having to wear a mask throughout their work shifts, worrying about catching the virus, dealing with the extra workloads from the increases in demand that some of the stores and supermarkets that have remained open, having to deal with extra workloads because other workers are out sick or taking leaves, things like that, being relegated to have to deal with constant cleaning and safety protocols on top of already strenuous workloads. A lot of these larger companies' understaffing was already an issue. Low pay was already an issue. In the beginning of the pandemic, these workers were hailed as heroes. There's a lot of appreciation. A lot of companies rolled out hazard pay, an extra dollar or two an hour, and that disappeared starting in June. Virtually every major company out there rescinded that extra pay and those bonuses, but the coronavirus is still out there. A lot of places in the U.S. are seeing cases still increase. Workers are still getting sick. Workers are still passing away or you know, family members. It's still a major concern for those working on the front line, and they're not seeing that kind of appreciation, yeah. uh, at least from employers. Let's go through some of these different essential workers, too. Obviously, let's start with our frontline workers in the healthcare industry. I mean, they're working tons and tons of hours and obviously working right there with people that are sick. There's high rates of depression with a lot of these workers, anxiety and just insomnia is another thing. People can't report just not being able to sleep. It's been really stressful for uh, workers in the healthcare industry who are dealing with coronavirus patients, dealing with a major loss, getting sick themselves. Hundreds of healthcare workers have passed away throughout this pandemic because they've been working on the front lines. And opposite with that, because elective surgeries were halted, a lot of hospitals and a lot of clinics, they've conducted furloughs, they've conducted pay cuts. They've done layoffs. So you have workers working on the front lines dealing with a pandemic. And on the other hand, you have a lot of workers who are getting laid off and furloughed in the same industry where, like I said before, these workers are are hailed as heroes and essential and frontline workers, but they're not treated like that. Grocery store and food service workers, they've seen a lot of stress throughout this whole thing, obviously with kind of just the way the industry went, grocery stores were inundated with customers, you know, doing all that panic buying, food service workers going through shutdowns and and reopenings as well. But it's really tough for them too. I mean, they've been there through the whole entire thing. You also had another story about how Walmart is restructuring their staffing, consolidating departments and roles there. And a lot of people feel the squeeze that way. They feel like uh, if they don't make the cut into one of these new roles, 
their hours are going to get cut. They're not going to receive as much pay. So, uh, I mean, this is another kind of aspect to this whole thing. Walmart started this program called the Great Workplace Program. They started rolling it out at some stores in 2019 and 2020. You know, workers who were experiencing that program, the consensus was departments were getting consolidated. A lot of the department management positions were getting eliminated, and those workers were forced to apply for these new positions. And if you don't get them, a lot of those workers were either laid off or relegated to associate positions where they would experience pay cuts. And on top of departments consolidating, you had workers that traditionally worked in those original departments fighting for hours. So I I spoke with workers who saw hour cuts from 35 to 40 a week to, you know, 20 a week. And essentially that that way it's forcing those workers to, you know, either have to leave or try to get a second job or try to find a way to make ends meet on uh, a pay that's already under $15 an hour with reduced hours and no security or idea if things are going to get better or worse. Michael Sainato, reporter for The Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. You were able to sort of carpool to the festival and you and your car be placed into a quarantine area six feet apart where everyone took a rapid test. Joining us now is Michelle Luke, independent counterculture journalist at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thank you. You know, as we're trying to get things back to normal, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. One thing in particular that I know a lot of people are missing, want to get back to normal with is music, live music, music festivals. There's, you know, it runs the gamut. There's a lot of things that are going out there. But right now, music festivals are trying to create their own bubbles to get people to get out there and and enjoy that uh, once again. So they're looking at these kind of two-stage COVID testing, maybe test before a few days, then you're going to get a quick test at the door. And if all's good, you can go inside and party. So there's already been one festival who tried this out. This is over the Labor Day holiday Michelle, tell us a little bit about that and then the broader strategy overall. So that festival was called Utopia. It took place in uh, the Poconos Mountains in Pennsylvania. It was an LGBT festival. And I think that the promoter told me that he was really looking for a way for his community to come back together. So he was actually replicating a model that another festival did a couple months ago where they also did two-stage testing. And basically how it works is that before attending the festival, about four days before, you have to go to a medical facility or order it at home COVID test. And those were sent to a lab. And then once you got the all clear from that, you were able to sort of carpool to the festival and you and your car be placed into a quarantine area six feet apart where everyone took a rapid test. And what was really interesting to me is that they actually managed to screen out some people who tested positive. I think in total around six attendees had to be turned away. And so a few of the attendees who managed to make it through the gates also told me that even though, you know, it was extra money and a lot more effort to attend the festival, the sense of freedom that they got on the other side made it worth it. Obviously, there's a cost associated with this for the attendees and for the event promoters, you know, the costs are going to, I'm sure, double in some parts of it. And then there's also kind of the logistics of all of that, too. I mean, it's, it's more time intensive, right? You're getting tested days before. The line to get inside is probably that much longer. So let's talk about some of those things. 
So one thing while writing this story that I wanted to figure out, you know, is could this method work for other festivals or is it only applicable to like a certain type? And I think in general, yeah, it doesn't really work for festivals where people aren't camping on site because of the nature of creating a bubble. You kind of have to stay within the grounds for the entire time. Even leaving to go to like, you know, a grocery store to pick up some supplies or something could compromise everybody. So that's one of the hurdles, I think, that it doesn't really work for larger festivals festivals like, let's say, Coachella. Also, the promoters told me that when it came down to the numbers, you know, he had to really beef up his staff in order to provide the kind of attention that you would need to do all of the testing and just give people sort of like reminders to wear masks and things like that. There's just more staffing needs. So his staffing costs went from 10% to 22%. So it pretty much doubled. And the testing altogether took up 30% of his budget. So this wasn't really a money-making operation for him. He said he saw it as more of an investment in his future because he's planning to keep doing this. Again, he already has another event scheduled for Halloween. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this, but they're really looking at this model as something that could at least hold them over for now because, you know, a vaccine's still going to take some time. Beyond that, to get people actually vaccinated in large numbers is going to take time. And in the meantime, you know, these events, promoters want to get back to action. People want it, too. They want that escape. They don't want to be closed down anymore. So they're still kind of looking at this two testing stage thing as a possibility. Exactly. And I think it's such an interesting time for nightlife and music events. You know, a lot of promoters have not been doing anything or they've, you know, indefinitely postponed or in some cases we've seen some festivals kind of schedule some things for 2021. So, you know, on one hand, I think a lot of events organizers just don't feel like it's safe to be doing anything right now. And they really push back on anyone throwing events. So that's another part of the conversation that I thought was very interesting. But then you have promoters like the one who was behind this festival, who really thinks that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that focusing on COVID testing is one way that they can do this now and create a community that, you know, is engaged with them during this strange pandemic time. And to me, I think another side of the story was to kind of try to figure out if COVID testing is accurate enough to make this a viable solution. To me, that's what the story really hinged on, right? Like, can we trust the COVID testing? That's a very important point because the classic tests, the nasal swabs, the ones that are sent to labs are a lot more reliable than these rapid response tests. So you might be getting something a few days ahead of time that says you're good. And then a rapid response test the day of could give you maybe a false positive or a false negative, things like that. So that's a definitely another thing to be wary of. So I actually took this question all the way up to the New York City Department of Health, as well as the Office of Nightlife, to try and figure out if we could get some guidelines from, you know, city officials. And unfortunately, you know, what was striking to me is that both of these departments kind of told me that they basically couldn't comment, that they couldn't really say. Without any clear guidance from city officials, this answer is a little bit difficult to answer. But the fact is that organizers of events are doing it anyway. And I guess, you know, the promoter of this festival recently told me that he had zero confirmed cases after the festival. Michelle Luke, independent counterculture journalist at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.